Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm David Rowe. In today's episode, Aspie Executive Director Justin Bassey and the Institute's new fellow Amy Bagia discuss the significance and substance of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's visit to Beijing. Anthony Albanese, the Australian Prime Minister, has concluded a visit to China where he met with President Xi Jinping, Premier Li Chung and many other senior officials. Optically, there was a lot to note. Obvious demonstrations of warmth, with both sides drawing heavily on the history of the relationship. The trip presented as a 50th anniversary occasion following Gough Whitlam's visit in 1973 after diplomatic relations were established. Of course, Mr Albanese was called a handsome boy by Lee Chung after he was snapped by the Australian's China correspondent Will Glasgow in a Matilda's jersey while out walking in Shanghai. Beneath all that, there's substance and subtext to what it all means. And to talk through all of that, I'm here with Aspie's Executive Director, Justin Bassey, and our special guest, Amy Bagia. Amy is Managing Director of Garno Global and was until recently on the Biden-Harris Administration's National Security Council, working in countering foreign interference. She's also served in various positions within the US intelligence community, as well as the State Department and the CIA. Awesome to have you both on the podcast. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And, and great to be here, uh, joined by Amy. So Justin, let's kick off with you. What were your overall views of the visit? Uh, Dave, I think your summary at the beginning was was a great snapshot. The visit was uh, positive. Uh, engagement, diplomatic engagement is positive. And it is always great to be able to look back on some history and the context uh, of the 50-year anniversary of Prime Minister Whitlam's visit. That was great symbolism. What we need to be able to do, though, is both symbolism and substance. These visits are not viewed as simply symbolic by Beijing. It's all strategic. That's why they turn off such engagement and they cancel visits when they want to. They want to change other countries' views and policies. They've actually used visits and engagement as an asymmetric means to coerce other countries. So amongst the fanfare, it needs to be clear-eyed with the knowledge that China has different strategic objectives to us. And that's why I think the Prime Minister's messaging that we won't let our differences define us is a smart one-liner, but it's actually a problem because, of course, the differences define Australia's democracy and China's Communist Party. Those differences are structural, involving one country adhering to international rules and the other country breaching just about every rule under the sun with cyber intrusions, foreign interference in our institutions, military aggression in the South China Sea, including against our own planes, the ships of our friends, and, of course, systemic human rights abuses. Those differences are not those with which we've had in recent decades with other countries. There's a danger in comparing the differences we have with China with, for example, uh, the differences we've had with Japan on whaling or the EU on geographical indicators of cheese or where we just have different personalities um, between whoever's sitting in the prime minister's chair and the president of the US. So, both sides, both China and Australia, have talked a lot about stabilisation or setting a new path, Dave, but it's vital that stabilisation or a new path doesn't mean that Australia is silent while China continues to breach international rules and human rights. That's not a stable relationship or pathway. It's an unequal one which would be coerced into silence, and I think that always has to be remembered. Personally, I feel very strongly about the geographical origins of cheese, but um, <laughs> taking your point beyond that, good answer. Amy, same question to you, uh, please. What were your overall impressions of the visit? Yeah, thank you. Look, rare occasion that I don't fully agree with Justin, and in this case, I do agree that you know important to have pathways for diplomatic engagement, particularly as tensions are ratcheting up elsewhere in the world. And I do think important that the prime minister continued to consider improving particularly economic ties. Though I would say in this instance, the rhetorical win was in China's favor. The prime minister's visit coming right off the back of his visit to the United States to Washington, D.C., makes it seem almost of parallel importance. And I think that's a strategic misstep on Australia's part. 
you know, I think the partnership between Australia and the United States has grown in important ways and in beneficial ways, mutually beneficial ways. Trying to restore the relationship with China, although important for stability, you know, I think should not be considered uh, of the same kind. And frankly, if I may just, you know, call out China's readout of the visit, just to put a finer point on this effort to rhetorically paint the two visits as of equal importance. You know, she said that China and Australia are both Asia Pacific countries and important members of the G20 with no historical grievances or fundamental conflicts of interest. I think most Australians would disagree with that. And I think that this visit with all of the symbolism around it is actually harming Australia's strategic interests and frankly, opening the door back up for China to gain leverage and look for new opportunities for economic coercion. Fascinating. I mean, just a practical follow-up then. I mean, was it unwise and should it have been avoided to put the trips side by side like this? Well, look, I think, you know, having having worked at the White House and sort of familiar with at least how the how the president's travel is a complex ballet. Look, I don't know if it was entirely avoidable, but I do think that it demonstrates the wrong message. I don't think that the prime minister being, you know, courted and feted in Beijing was appropriate given sort of the state of the relationship. And frankly, I think the goals of the relationship, which were both to reestablish some dialogue, but not by any means to roll back the clock, you know, six or, or seven years. That is that's certainly not the trajectory of the relationship, in my view. I agree with Amy. The, the only nuance I'd have there is I think potentially we could look back on the Prime Minister's visit to the US as the most important in his first term, in part because of the strength of the messaging from the US to the Prime Minister and the Australian delegation during that visit. If you uh, had a look at Australia's rhetoric, uh, as Amy was talking about, leading into the US visit, we had gone pretty much silent on issues like the South China Sea. While other countries had been condemning China's actions of aggression against the Philippines, resupply ships, Australia had not said anything. If that visit to the United States hadn't happened, there would have been complete silence heading into the China visit. But because of that visit, because of the trip to the US, the joint statement was very strong condemning China's actions on the second Thomas Shoal. And we saw the Prime Minister backing in AUKUS in a, in a really strong way. And then we saw, even if not directly from him, we saw some clear backgrounding of journalists in Australia around economic security and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So I think Amy is 100% right that the symbolism and the photo opportunities were completely in Beijing's favour. And ideally, those visits aren't back to back. But I actually think in this occasion, there has actually been a real benefit of strengthening Australia's arm leading into the China visit. So, so I guess, sticking with you, Justin, were the expectations that were raised around language, calling out misbehaviour, these sorts of things during the Washington trip, were they actually borne out in the way Prime Minister Albanese presented Australia's positions when he was actually in Beijing? I think the Foreign Minister Penny Wong's statement leading into on the eve of the visit that it was important that we no longer viewed economics and security as separate, that was setting down a clear marker. It was a really important statement. I think, though, the problem is that we still are seeing, this goes to Amy's original point, we're still seeing a disconnect between our rhetoric and our policies or actions. And there's no doubt that the Australian government will have viewed its China policy over the first year, 18 months of carefully calibrating its language while maintaining existing policy. They'll view that as being largely effective and to a great extent it has been. But it still needs to be consistency. You can have lower rhetoric, of course, but when the lower rhetoric turns into silence or when it becomes inconsistent with your policy, it then really favours an authoritarian regime who preys on Western inconsistencies. Uh, and I think we've seen that with the episode on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a clear strategic objective of Beijing's wanting to get into the TPP to ensure that the US is not only unable to ever get into the TPP in the future, but effectively to remove 
the American influence in the region. We have seen a reluctance on the Australian side, on the Prime Minister's side, to to actually say that the answer is China is unable to accede to the TPP at the moment because they are breaching international rules of trade, that the TPP isn't just an economic agreement, it is a strategic agreement based on, on rules and standards, and it's simply inconceivable that China, with all its use of economic coercion, its IP theft, uh, which the ASIO Director General joined with his colleagues to say was at an unprecedented scale by China and its subsidies to its own companies giving them a competitive advantage. With all of that, it's simply inconceivable that Beijing would be in a position to meet the standards of the TPP. Now, the Prime Minister, of course, doesn't need to be that blunt, but the messaging saying that not providing clarity on what Australia's position is, and in fact, leading with a principle of that accession to the TPP needs to have the unanimous agreement of all parties. That, of course, is technically accurate. But effectively, what it's saying is Australia will hide behind other countries that we know are not going to want China to exceed like Japan. But the clear message to Japan is that Australia may very well be asking Japan to play a good cop, bad cop routine in which Australia gains the benefits of being only a good cop and we leave the bad cop or the pragmatism to other countries. So there is a lot to like about the foreign policy that we've seen over the past year. There have been successes and it's largely been effective, but we can't afford to have a situation where the rhetoric either turns to silence or becomes inconsistent with the policy. Yeah, okay. If I could, if I could just jump on, on that point, I think on the rhetoric in particular, I think it's appropriate and fair for the prime minister to calibrate his remarks, particularly when in country. But I think it's also important that back here at home, that the language should be strong, it should be clear, that while you know overtures for diplomatic stabilization, normalization occur, that here at home in Australia, we're hardening our defenses, that we're stepping up our game, that that we're being complacent and not that we're pausing where we're at. You know, I think it is it is fine to have outreach and to try and restore some of the trade that has not yet been restored. But at the same time, I think we, we can't be complacent and think that Beijing's goals have somehow changed in terms of their interest in interfering in Australian democracy in terms of IP theft, in terms of, you know, co-optation of Australian elites to change the way that this country thinks and views China. And so I think, you know, it's it's important that in addition to the overtures of restoration of normalcy, that, that below the surface, there needs to be a lot of hardening happening because Beijing has not changed. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in terms of the outcomes, Amy, I'm interested in your view on the sort of announceables that came out of the, the joint statement between Anthony Albanese and Xi Jinping. Cooperate where we can is obviously the, the phrase that the, the Albanese government has become very fond of. So in terms of the areas of cooperation, which have always been a little bit well, it's always been a little bit uncertain to a lot of observers where those areas of cooperation are realistically going to arise, but we've got some new visa arrangements, which will be under discussion, still to be finalised. We've got a commission to discuss the free trade agreement signed back in 2014. We've got some climate cooperation. What do you make of those actual outcomes? Are they substantial areas or are they sort of decorations on the visit? Mm, yeah, great question. So look, I think when, if you ask sort of savvy watchers of, of the political rhetoric and the difference between the outcomes of the Washington DC visit and the Beijing visit, the differences are stark. What came out of the Beijing visit is mostly symbolic in many respects. But I think there are two areas where the Australian government is so far heralding key elements as successes, which I actually think are cause for concern. The first in particular, and obviously I'm, I'm sort of primed to think in this way uh, as my in my former hat, I was a director for countering foreign interference in the United States. And so, you know, when when we talk about incentivizing and increasing visas and exchanges between think tanks and journalists and politicians, extending the length of those visas, you know, the, the first thing I think about is is actually that those were some of the primary and most 
hard to pin vectors of Chinese Communist Party influence inside of Australia, certainly true in the United States as well. And so, you know, although I think the exchange is important in this context, I actually really worry that because we have not increased our our sort of defenses here at home, that we're almost sleepwalking into 2016 again. And then sort of the other area where I think more could have been done is is really on the human rights front. And so while I was at the White House, we we sort of nested our counter foreign interference policy as about building democratic resilience in particular. And one area where I was disappointed by the Albanese government was, frankly, the sort of thin treatment of human rights issues in public statements. You know, although fabulous success of having uh, journalists released prior to the trip, I don't want to forget that, you know, Australia still has Dr. Yang Hunjun still in China, who's, you know, deeply suffering. And this is an area where I think, you know, anytime the, the rhetoric out of Beijing about returning to normal comes to the fore, I, I'm, I'm fairly disappointed because there are fundamental differences in our values that I think can't be overlooked and should constantly be on the front of our minds. Yeah. It does raise the question, are we being too glass half empty by not crediting some of these moments and taking, you know, I, I suppose moving to the position that uh, that those structural differences are still what we should be focused on as the as the sort of basis of the relationship. So, Justin, perhaps to you first, what would your response be to, for instance, people in the business community or the academic community who say that we are just focusing on the negatives here? I think Amy nailed it when she said that there is a risk that we're sleepwalking into 2016. My message to the business community, to the academic community, to the policy makers and to the political class is that we do have to learn from history. And it's not as though this is ancient history. We have actually seen over the past decade that simply choosing to only focus in on the positives is actually not in our national interest. The reason we shifted strategically in 2016 was because there was so much malicious activity that China's behavior pre then was a form of salami slicing. And salami slicing is usually used in terms of what they've done in the South China Sea, but they were salami slicing whole countries like Australia. They were focusing in at times on cyber intrusions. They were focusing in on investment in, in sensitive areas. They were focusing in on foreign interference. 2015, 2016, we saw a confluence of all of those events uh, almost forcing us into action. So it's not a matter of, I do get concerned when sometimes we hear that we shouldn't focus only on the negatives. We should, of course, recognize that there are positives and there are opportunities, but we have to be able to show that we're not going after economic opportunities at the expense of our security interests. It's why the phrase, Dave, that you and Amy were talking about earlier of, of cooperate where we can with China and disagree where we must. Again, it's a, it's, it's a good one-liner it's it's, and it's good in theory. We don't want to decouple from all aspects of, of the relationship. There need to be avenues for trade. There need to be avenues for diplomatic engagement. But the risk is, and I think it's no longer a risk, I, I think we are reverting to 10 years ago, as Amy said, through our messaging that goes beyond the reality that there are actually far fewer elements on which we can cooperate than on which we should be disagreeing. And while it's, of course, sensible not to pick at every single issue, you don't want to have a prime minister going to another country and getting stuck in, but the problem is that we have moved back to an era where there doesn't seem to be much in, if anything at all, in the must column. So, for example, if the complete breaches that we're seeing in the South China Sea, ramming of Philippines resupply vessels, water cannoning vessels, if that's not in the must column of disagreeing with and condemning, then we've got a problem. It's why, Dave, governments should 
But they, they need to act when we should act, when they should act, not only when we're forced to. So, so, so I guess the question here is, and perhaps uh, this is a better formulation than the, the garbled version I, I asked before, but looking at it from the PM's point of view for a moment, and to you, Amy, shouldn't he be leaning into the positives in these sorts of moments? I mean, aren't there, uh, wasn't this the right moment for him to actually focus on those positives? Look, you know, I think that it's actually not so black and white. And and I think the two things are not mutually exclusive. The challenge and, and one that I'm both familiar with and, and I find unenviable is to be able to talk about relations with Beijing in a nuanced way. And so, yes, the Australian, you know, polity more or less is craving sort of the economic ties. They, they in fact, may be craving, you know, to go back in time where everything seemed easier. But the truth is, is that it was underneath the surface, not healthy for Australia to continue as it was going. And I think, again, the government's job right now is to explain that that they can walk and chew gum, that we can have dialogue with Beijing. But at the same time, that's not going to force us to compromise on the things that that, as Justin said, you know, we, we absolutely cannot afford to compromise on. And so, you know, I think it's important to be able to say here are the positives and here are the areas where maybe there are there's room for negotiation but each of those points comes at some risk to australia and so yes you reestablish economic ties yes you become a little more dependent on on exports to china but again that just increases the balance of leverage uh, that they have over australia you know for for future economic coercion again i don't think that beijing has changed its policies. And so, you know, I, I'm concerned that Australia seems at this moment in time to have forgotten the very hard learned lessons of five or six years ago. It's why these visits are actually important. They should happen. It's why the United States seeks engagement. The visits do allow an opportunity for our leaders to show Beijing that, that they won't buckle and that they won't be put in a position where for a few short-term economic inducements, we will forgive malign behaviour or not stand up to our principles and deprioritise our security interests. So these, so these visits are really important. I've got no doubt that in the private meetings where the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister made that very clear. The issue I think that Amy and I are stressing is that it's one thing to not poke another country in the eye all the time, but there needs to be consistency, which is why, notwithstanding what might happen behind the scenes, if the messaging publicly, coming back into the Australian public, is one of Beijing's rhetoric and Beijing's principles and President Xi's thought, then that is a real problem for our national security and national interests. It's why someone in the Prime Minister's team or in the bureaucracy, Dave, needs to say to the Prime Minister, don't use the term win-win. You know, win-win for, for, for us in Australia, of course, it, it's great that everybody wins, but for, Beijing uses it. It's a Beijing, it's a President Xi term. It means that for them, win-win means that in return for offering some short-term financial inducements or benefits, Australia is going to be silent as China just continues breaching international rules and bilateral agreements. It's, it's also why we should ensure that all politicians' remarks and policymakers' remarks don't use the phrase that the relationship is currently built on mutual respect and mutual trust, because it's clearly not built on trust. Just about all of our bilateral agreements uh, and the international rules that China has signed on to, they are, they are breaching. And so that is not one of trust, that's one of distrust. So, so in a well related area, and I, there's a few more questions I just want to punch through in fairly short time without running uh, over. But the comprehensive strategic partnership is something that has uh, come up again. We are, of course, technically comprehensive strategic partners and have been for at least a decade, I think. Xi Jinping used the phrase comprehensive strategic partners. I think in the uh, joint leaders statement, it raised the uh, prospect of meetings as comprehensive strategic partners. Amy, starting with you, does this make any sense to you at all? What, what's the basis of actually having some kind of aligned strategic aims that we can partner around? Yeah, look, I, you know, I think not to belabor the point, but Justin made it beautifully earlier that 
you can't be comprehensive strategic partners anymore, given the history. The meaning of it has been rendered useless at this stage. And and I don't think, again, that the goal should ever be to return to where we were, because the truth is, is that, again, under the surface, there was a lot in that relationship that was broken and not working. And so, you know, the idea of returning to the strategic partnership, the halcyon days, would be playing into into exactly what Beijing wants to do, which is, you know, wipe the map clean and start again. And that that's not in Australia's interest. Justin, just quickly on that. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think it's from a different era. And again, it goes to what China and what President Xi do better than most, that they absolutely fixated with achieving their strategic objectives, uh, no matter what, and also winning in the narrative, in the information domain. And so it is absolutely in President Xi and the CCP's interest to once again say how wonderful the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership is. But we have to remember that the CSP was effectively signed onto at the same time as the Free Trade Agreement, the Bilateral Free Trade Agreement was signed onto in 2013. The fact is that basically from day one, China has been breaching that bilateral agreement. So in terms of what's been comprehensive, it's been a comprehensive breaching by Beijing. And they've been very strategic. They've wanted to set about achieving their aims. But we constantly look to sign China up to either bilateral agreements or international rules. And that is actually important. We do need to set those parameters. But we also have to be realistic that it is very easy for China to sign on to these strategic partnerships. It's very easy for China to sign on to international rules because they actually then find it even easier to breach, particularly if they are confident that we're not going to enforce the rules. So if we're not going to enforce them and we're going to act like nothing has changed in the comprehensive strategic partnership, then that then also goes back to it being a win-win for Beijing. And, and just, you know, the, the, it's not just the last couple of years that we're seeing economic coercion or aggression in the, in the South China Sea. Almost every agreement that Beijing has signed on to, they're breaching, whether it be the one that President Xi gave face-to-face to President Obama in 2015 not to use cyberspace to steal intellectual property for commercial gain that China signed a similar agreement with Australia in PM Turnbull's days in 2017, signed another one with the UK, after a bit of a pause because it was a priority of Western countries like ours. China got back on the horse, and so now it is back at an unprecedented scale of IP theft. They've signed on to the UN Convention of Law of the Sea, yet they are breaching almost daily international rules when it comes to in the South China Sea. And of course, in terms of our free trade agreement and the WTO, they are breaching through economic coercion and other means. The the reality is that China actually looks to weaponize their membership of these bodies, these agreements, these institutions to undermine the rules. So there is a danger that it's not, again, to say that we have to poke China in the face every single time, but taking on the language of President Xi and acting like nothing has changed in the partnership between Australia and China only benefits Beijing. Okay. One more quick one each. Justin, for you, how will this be received in the region? What do you think Southeast Asia will be making of it, India, Japan? Well, I think clearly regional stability, all countries in the region want it. So on the face of it, many countries will like the fact that there is re-engagement between Australia and China, as should we. The countries will definitely have taken note of that re-engagement. The region, Southeast Asia, the Pacific, they don't like tension. They actually don't like the idea that there is strategic competition uh, in the region or globally. And they don't like, of course, talking about defence policy or defence capabilities. But I think it is really important to, to note that as much as the region will be looking at this re-engagement and being largely positive about it, and as much as they do want reduced tensions, there's one thing the region fears more than strategic competition, and that is no competition. They don't want the United States and Australia just leaving them to Beijing's will and aggression themselves. That's why we have an obligation to join other countries in holding China to account when they do breach 
international rules or bilateral agreements. If we stay silent, Dave, in relation to uh, actions against Philippines resupply vessels, what does that say to the Philippines? And what does it say to the rest of Southeast Asia? It actually feeds into China's narrative that they do very successfully, that they say to the region, we are here geographically, the United States isn't, you can't trust US, you can't trust Australia. So even though you might not like what we do, you're lumped with us. So I I think, again, it goes to a balance uh, and foreign policy is difficult. There's always a need to be able to achieve your opportunities, but not at the expense of either our own national security or regional stability, which doesn't just mean temporary. It means we have to focus in on the long term. Just to add very quickly that, you know, I think important to recognize that these countries don't want to be forced to choose between China and the United States. And China has done a very good job of painting the picture as if it is the United States-led coalition forcing this choice, forcing their hand. And the truth is, it's that it's Beijing's actions in the region that are forcing the choice on these countries. And that that point is one that is lost sometimes in the just flood of information coming out of Beijing into these countries. You know, they've dominated the information space in many of these countries. And so that's that's the only narrative that they hear. Important that, you know, United States and Australia continue to engage in these countries, continue to just make plain the actions that Beijing is taking and that that in fact it is Beijing that is forcing these countries to make the choice. It's such a good point. And we get frustrated in Australia and the United States when the region, Southeast Asian countries, specific countries can freely speak up and criticize our countries, whether it be for our climate policies or criticizing AUKUS and defense policy. Of course, it's frustrating, particularly when there's a double standard that the region then doesn't speak up when China uses military aggression in the South China Sea or is attacking everybody in cyberspace. But I think the crucial element is that at times we need to put up with that double standard because what it shows is that the regional countries, they have trust in both Australia and the US and others like Japan that they can speak up and they can criticise us from time to time and we're not going to punish them. We're not going to use our asymmetric power to, to economically coerce them into silence. The reason that they are so silent in relation to Beijing's malicious activity is because they fear China. It's that lack of trust. So I think there is a lot to work with there. And that's why Amy's right, that it's not that Australia should actually go into an era of silence. We've got to continue to be consistent and to work with the region to ensure that they know that we will continue to be consistent with our principles. All right, Amy, last one just quickly to you. Obviously, there's a lot of partisanship and division in Washington right now, but this is one rare area of agreement across parties and political lines, and that is, of course, the need to constrain China's rise, or at least the the aggressive and assertive elements of it. What does that tell us about this issue? Just explain that rare agreement for us. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think first, maybe to begin with a bit of a caveat, which is that, you know, broadly on China, there is a growing recognition that the competition is not always a fair one. And, you know, at principle, we fundamentally disagree with that. Now, within the sort of specific elements of this discussion and debate, there is actually quite a bit of division. And so I think that's why you see you know, for example, on export controls, the Biden administration has done impressive work to roll out export controls, particularly focused on semiconductors, but they've taken quite a bit of time. And according to, to media reports, they've they've been scaled back a little bit over time from their original conception. That should be sort of indicative of, you know, debate still happening inside the United States as to the right approach, how to calibrate our response to areas that we find non-negotiable. So for example, on, on semiconductors versus I think, you know, the same push and pull that Australia feels. They're, they're an important trading partner. And frankly, I think as you can see in, in President Biden's upcoming possible meeting with President Xi, that they, the United States also looks for stability that we, uh, I believe, have said a number of times out of the National Security Council you know, that we're looking for small yard, high fence, putting a floor under the relationship, preventing further destabilization. But 
I do think important to remember that the progress that we've come, that we finally achieved in finding at least some semblance of agreement in Washington was was hard won, and that there are still significant pockets of disagreement still. And in particular, in my experience, those pockets of disagreement still exist when it comes to counter-foreign interference policy. And so where we have sort of a clear direction to protect sensitive technology, to protect, frankly, our you know precious research ecosystem on other issues, the United States still has, frankly, a lot to learn from Australia. And, and, it, and if I could just echo one point that Justin made uh, just before, which is that I really do believe there's a role for Australian leadership in this space, that on foreign interference, on economic coercion, you know, Australia showed the world that you could stand up to the CCP's policies and not just survive, but thrive, that you could find alternative markets, that you could maintain your partnerships, that the sky wouldn't fall. But if Australia is seen to back down from that position, that sends an unfortunate message to other countries that Australian leadership may not kind of be the shining light anymore. And that would be unfortunate because I think at least at least for me, when I was in the position of, of helping to set U.S. policy on foreign interference, I often look to my Australian counterparts for guidance and sometimes fortitude. Mm, yeah, no, it's, it's a great point and it certainly is something that... Um that all Australians have, have have lived through and experienced, I think that the 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 strong popular support was there for for those sorts of positions. It certainly wasn't something that was particularly politically controversial here. So it was some, something that the nation really got behind. The, the, the point Amy's making is is so crucial because it, it did surprise Beijing that Australia could withstand mm. the economic coercion. But the the issue is we can't be viewing it as a triumph and saying, well, we've survived five years, therefore we have, we've done it. Yep. Beijing, yes, they're surprised, but they're still asking the question is, well, can you, can you survive another five? And if the signs are that we can't, that will encourage more malicious behaviour. And so that's why we just can't afford to provide concessions to China for when they stop activity that they should never have started to begin with whether it be economic coercion or, as Amy said at the beginning of the podcast, in relation to the arbitrary detention of Australians, Dr. Young Hen-Jun has been arbitrarily detained for almost five years. That's not a relationship based on trust and respect. And so we need to remember that as much as Australia has done well, and Australia should be proud of being able to, as Amy said, survive and thrive, we are still absolutely obligated to maintain our principles, both for ourselves, but also as a regional power, we are absolutely obligated to show the region that we will continue to stick by the values and principles and interests that have served us so well and, and that we will stand by them as well. And indeed, both those partnerships, exactly that Beijing fears the most. Those partnerships, the strength of those partnerships working together is the thing that bothers them the most and all the more we stick to it. All right. It's an enormously fascinating and important conversation to have. You both contributed a huge amount of wisdom to it. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Pleasure, guys. Next up, Daria Impiambato speaks with Bethany Allen Ebrahimian, the China reporter for Axios and author of a very popular weekly newsletter. Bethany talks about her new book, Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World, which I'm pleased to say is a cracking read. Welcome, Bethany, on our podcast. I'm really happy to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to join. Um, so today we're going to talk about the book you recently published called Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. I think the title is really great in encapsulating what the book is about, but I'd like to get started by giving you a chance to sort of give a summary of, of the book and its significance. Yeah, my main idea for the book is looking at the way that the Chinese government has created some pretty innovative ways of selectively controlling access to its economy, its investments, and its capital in order to shape the behavior and decision-making of governments, companies, multilateral institutions, 
and individuals to bring them more in line with the Chinese Communist Party's core interests. The, the term that I use for this is authoritarian economic statecraft. And I, I, I like the term economic coercion. I'm glad that that's a term that we're using these days to describe some of the ways that the Chinese government does this. And Australia, of course, was a major target of China's economic coercion in 2020. But the term I use, authoritarian economic statecraft, is a, a broader term and I think a better way, a better framework for understanding comprehensively how the Chinese government uses the power of its economy in this way, which is to say that it's, it uses both carrots and sticks as a comprehensive way of shaping decision-making rather than simply applying pressure at certain points or at certain decisions to punish certain countries for certain decisions, although it certainly does do that. And then second, you know, the U.S. uses economic coercion. Other countries use economic coercion. But what's different about what China does is that both its methods, some of its methods and some of its goals are very clearly authoritarian. And that matters because what we're talking about here isn't just a country pursuing its own, you know, neutral geopolitical interests, which every country does. What we're talking about is a country that wants to project its authoritarianism around the world and reshape the norms and the institutions that run the world to make them uh, more friendly to authoritarianism or more authoritarian themselves. Yes, I think the book is really helpful in sort of giving a lot of context and sort of a historical perspective around the term and what that means. Uh, we have used the term economic coercion in a, a few of our reports on some work that I hope to keep bringing forward on sort of, you know, the PRC's use of, sort of gray zone areas to coerce other countries. But I have found your book extremely useful in, in adding a bit more context to, to that and to like sort of how Beijing uses all those different tools to achieve its, its goals. So I thought that was really useful. And as you mentioned, you know, in Australia, this is always a very timely conversation that we keep having, you know, as we speak, there are sanctions that have been imposed back in 2020 that are slowly being lifted somewhat. And the way our government is sort of dealing with that is very much up for discussion, particularly at a time where our prime minister Albanese is about to head to China for, for a visit. So I think it will continue to be really front and center of the policy discourse, uh, not only in the US, but especially in Australia right now, I think. And Sort of towards that, I wanted to ask you, you know, your book is so comprehensive. Uh, it was really hard for me to pick uh, what to talk about today, but I wanted to fo focus a little bit on the chapter about Australia. You know, you mentioned that while China's narrative has always been that, you know, Australia is a little dog following the United States, you know, everything it does, in reality, what happened, especially with the COVID origin investigation, was that Australia took the lead. And in many ways, it was thanks to a changing view of what China's actions meant for Australia's national security. Did you want to talk to us a bit about that chapter and, and how you went about writing it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, yes, there is a wide perception, not just in China, but I think, you know, in Europe and, and lots of other places that the Trump administration's pivot to a tougher policy on China was the Trump administration's pivot, that it was a U.S. idea, that it was a Trumpian thing, right? But what's interesting is that the Trump administration's first major China policy speech wasn't until October 2018, when Vice President Mike Pence um, gave a, a China speech at the Hudson Institute. But Malcolm Turnbull, who was then the Prime Minister of Australia, had given his first big speech that related to China in this kind of a context more than a year earlier at Shangri-La, which I think was in June or July of 2017, can't quite remember. And in fact, Malcolm Turnbull was the first head of any country to publicly say that the Chinese government was trying to interfere 
in the politics of, of other countries, of democratic nations. And that was a culmination of a number of events. And what my book does was, is kind of trace how this happened in Australia, and, but then look at how the close intelligence sharing relationship between Australia and the U.S. helped the U.S., follow in Australia's footsteps and how the, you know, looking at how the U.S. learned from what Australia was doing. Of course, John Garneau had an important role in this. He had previously been an investigative journalist and had you know, um, broken a lot of stories about how the Chinese government was using these various forms of rather hidden influence to try to influence Australian politics. And Australia was already leading in that way. You know, in 2008, there were articles in Australia about how the Chinese government was sending, uh, you know, secretly sending agents to try to disrupt pro-Tibet protests during the Olympic torch relay. And Australia was the only country in the world to have an article about that, even though it happened in maybe around seven countries. Um, and so there was already a body of knowledge that was publicly available because of, you know, a few investigative journalists. But, you know, when John went into government and ended up being the speechwriter for Malcolm Turnbull, you know, he had a lot of opportunity to really work out with Turnbull, you know, what the problems really were. How do we define this? What What is the actual problem? What should we say about it? And and thus, what should we do about it? And Justin Bassi also had, you know, a very important role as the three of them were, were really hashing this out together. And so in, in Australia, you know, your debate about China's covert political interference in your domestic politics and your democracy was already in full swing by the time the U.S. launched our own discussion. And so I look at, for example, in fact, I think that I start the chapter with John Garneau flying to Washington, D.C. in 2017, I think, to uh, have meetings with Matt Pottinger, who was the Asia director at the National Security Council under the Trump administration, and the briefings that he gave to Matt and uh, to, to other people in the Trump administration that were really formative, that were really instrumental in shaping some of the, the early views that Pottinger had about what was wrong and, and what needed to change. And of course, there were you know lots of trips between the two capitals over the next few years of lawmakers, of administration officials. Uh, and of course, you know, this built on the very you know, long-standing and trusted relationship in the, the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Partnership. And it was you know, this way that the, the U.S. saw what was happening in Australia and you know, began looking, whether it's Trump administration officials, journalists, including myself, people at think tanks, realizing that what was happening in Australia was not an exception but was rather the rule of, of simply the way that the CCP engaged in democracies. Yes, I think that's that's super important to kind of remind ourselves of what actually happened. Because I feel like as within Australia, there is a tendency to underestimate the weight that we can have in international disputes and sort of setting the tone for like how we think we should go about solving these disputes and, and protecting our democratic values. Before I move on to the recommendation part that I wanted to unpack a bit more, could you maybe talk a bit about, you know, what you see going forward? Like what should we be expecting from Beijing? This is a new time, a new period for Beijing. I think from you know, the 90s up until around 220 was of a, of a kind, right? This is the era when China's economic growth is just is so rapid and it's growing in power and its relations with the rest of the world are mostly, you know, mostly pretty good. And it still, you know, views itself and other countries view it as a rising power, not as a risen superpower. But 2020 changed that. That was when, you know, after the initial few months of the pandemic, that was when Xi Jinping seemed to identify that moment, you know, when Europe was just, you know, really flailing and the U.S. was really flailing in our, in our pandemic policies. You know, hundreds of thousands of people were dying. And meanwhile, China was looking pretty great. It's very successful zero COVID policy and, you know, was saving lives and allowing the economy to, you know, just to really move along well. China was the only 
major economy in the world to grow in 2020. Xi Jinping seems to identify that moment as the moment when China won, the moment that the West, you know, now has declined and China has the opportunity to really make a leap forward and to, to take a bunch of things, to you know, sort of take its rightful place while everyone else is distracted. And so for you know, two years, really, a year and a half, we see these very, very assertive, very aggressive even policies from, from China. But you know, it's my opinion that Xi Jinping and China's other leaders have underestimated the resilience of democracy and the, the strength of democracy. And we, we see that in the way that, you know, for example, the way that China's zero COVID policy at the end was an enormous failure, that it persisted far too long, that there was no off-ramp, that it ended up, you know, traumatizing so many Chinese people, deeply damaging the economy, and really disillusioning a lot of Chinese people. If you look at the Shanghai lockdown, the, you know, that was the city, if there was any city in China that felt like authoritarianism didn't matter, that whatever the CCP had done had created all this wealth. You know, there was so much confidence in China's system. And that's, that has really been broken. You know, that, the people in Shanghai are very disillusioned now. And that has cast a, a pall over the sort of national tone in China. But even more so now, in 2023, we see that China's economy is really finally experiencing the slowdown that people have been predicting for so long, that its economic engine, its current model has run out of fuel, that its, you know, its real estate bubble is finally collapsing. And you know, so I would, I would say maybe we're now in a third stage. If COVID was a, a brief stage where it looked that China was really had it right, that, that now we're in a third stage where things are very uncertain, very uncertain. The whole world has not been in a position like this for a long time, you know, where you have a very, very strong power, a, a near peer competitor with the U.S. is how you know the Biden administration is characterizing China, but they're facing really, you know, really strong, really severe problems, you know, high unemployment and their economic troubles, et cetera, and 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 much of the world it seems like has turned turned against them because of their overly aggressive policies. So. Is Xi Jinping going to take some steps back? Is he going to try to repair relationships with uh, democratic countries and with uh, the West? Is he going to actually roll back some of his more aggressive policies, some of the extreme nationalism we've seen there? Or is he going to kind of go the, the Putin route of really doubling down on the nationalism, doubling down on the aggression, and trying to give Chinese people... A, you know, to vent their frustration and their despair and their anger, give them a foreign target to vent that on. You know, what, what's going to happen from here? And, and I think what we're seeing right now with the way that, that things are going, I, I think that Xi Jinping is trying to appear to be friendlier. We're, we're seeing a toning down of some of this wolf warrior diplomacy. But I don't think he's going to actually change his policies. I don't think he's going to stop, you know, the, the massive industrial espionage We've just seen in the past few weeks some, you know, very, very aggressive moves in the South China Sea against the Philippines, uh, such that that you know the U.S. is actually concerned that the U.S.-Philippines mutual defense treaty will be triggered. I mean, I think that she is very is very grateful or very you know welcoming of Australia's softer turn, but Australia's it's not going to go back to 2015. You know, the, there are deep concerns about the South China Sea and China's role in the Indo-Pacific. So I think we're entering into a period that's very risky, where there's a lot of danger in the world. Yes, it's a good reminder, considering that there has been so much talk here of warming relationships with China, especially with release of Australian journalist Cheng Lei and the, the lifting uh, supposedly of the wine tariffs now that really badly hit the wine industry here. What worries me is that, you know, in the future, Lobbying groups like the the wine industry, for example, would be very strongly opposing any move of the Australian government to confront China because of what has happened in the past, and, and that's that's certainly something that policymakers need to 
keep in mind. And also, I just wanted to mention, uh, like, as you said, just some cosmetic changes that, that, that are happening that are all about uh, propaganda and sort of whitewashing past mistakes or turning down of wolf warrior diplomacy or, you know, propaganda stints on, on Xinjiang. They're becoming extremely aggressive, but we haven't really seen a fundamental change in policy. What I really liked about your book was also a strong focus on censorship because in this sort of space, what is really important often is what goes unsaid. And the individuals and companies and countries that are preemptively self-censoring, that's where Beijing's strategy has worked, you know, and I was wondering if you had anything to add to that. About censorship? I think that I do. I do talk a lot about censorship, and, and also one of the the points that I that I emphasize in my book is that in the the early years when people were first kind of looking at the way that China uses its economic coercion around the world, a lot of times it was referred to as extraterritorial censorship. And in my book, I make the point that actually this form of power that China uses is a comprehensive form of national power affecting not just speech. But also defense decisions, economic decisions, foreign policy, multilateral institutions, corporate decisions. It's a comprehensive form of power projection. And what is important, I think, about the the instances when it is censorship or when it looks like censorship, is that really that's a signpost saying, here is the place right here. Here is a lever of power that China has. It can control the things that people say. But it can also control the things that people do right here in this space. So it's it's more like a flag, or you could think of it, you know, as the tip of an iceberg. If you see an area where China is able to control the speech of someone or an institution, it means that below that, they could use that power for all different kinds of things to change all different kinds of behavior. And it's often the case that speech is the one that makes the most waves or is easiest to see. So it's more of a, a signpost, I would say. And I think an example of this is of, of how it can be this form of comprehensive power is South Korea. In in 2016, the Chinese government issued, you know, in its opaque and you know de facto way, they didn't make any announcements, but but it's clear that the Chinese government issued a, some sweeping sanctions on the South Korean economy to punish the government for agreeing to install or saying it was going to install a U.S.-made missile defense system called THAAD, which would have strengthened, uh, which did strengthen South Korea's defense against North Korea, but could theoretically be used against China as well. And that's why Beijing didn't like it. And so K-pop stars were not allowed to perform in China. Their music was no longer streamed on Chinese streaming sites. Chinese tourists weren't permitted into South Korea South Korean retail chains had difficulties in the Chinese market, et cetera. And one, th- one thing that's so interesting about that, so you mentioned, you know, this concern that like the wine industry in Australia might in the future lobby the Australian government to have a softer, gentler policy on China or to a- avoid, you know, certain, certain actions. And that's exactly right. That's, you know, these kinds of actions from China are long-term. They have long-term effects. So South Korea. A couple of weeks ago, there was an article in Reuters revealing that last year, the South Korean government arrested the executive director of a South Korean marine technology company for signing an agreement with Taiwan to work on Taiwan's indigenous submarine project. And in the affidavit for this man's arrest, the South Korean authorities explicitly cited THAAD, cited these the economic sanctions that South Korea experienced in 2016 and said, we are concerned that China may retaliate against us as they did in 2016 because of this company's, this South Korean company's contract with Taiwan. And thus we view the executive director's behavior as jeopardizing South Korea's national security and thus violating South Korea's trade law. And so they, they arrested him and they fined the company. Now this is extraordinary because South Korea is a democracy, it's U.S. aligned. Taiwan is a democracy, it's U.S. aligned. They share more or less the same goals in the Indo-Pacific. For Taiwan to have its own submarines is obviously in South Korea's national interest. 
And so you have this economic coercion from China actually causing South Korea to act against its own national interest because of the economic coercion from China. And so these kinds of long-term downstream effects are exactly what Beijing hopes for. And so any sector in Australia that was affected by these tariffs, while Australia's economy overall may not have suffered, certainly individuals did. I know that there were, I think, dozens or hundreds of winemakers that went out of business, that they will certainly put pressure on the government and that will have downstream effects for years. So to wrap up, I guess, what's left for me to ask you is what do we do about this? What does the Australian government do about this? Obviously, you focus on recommendations for the US government, but you also have broader recommendations for the international democratic community. And you, I guess, oppose the term democratic economic statecraft to authoritarian economic statecraft. How would you encapsulate your recommendations, especially for U.S. allies like Australia? Yes, the biggest one, and this is, you know, I didn't come up with it, of course. It's something that more and more people are now talking about and, and, you know, mentioning some version of it, is something like an economic NATO, an economic Article 5, an economic mutual defense agreement, something like this, where countries, like-minded countries get together and they either form some kind of agreement or some kind of you know, loosely organized grouping where they explicitly say, if one of us or one of our industries is targeted by China for you know, authoritarian coercive purposes, we will take these, you know, as a group, we will take these measures to support the targeted industries to provide like emergency assistance, for example, and also perhaps take punitive measures against China. And I think that that has, you know, it has two different obvious effects if that were to happen, if this kind of organization were to be created. First, it would be a deterrent to China. Up to this point, the Chinese government has faced, or China has faced, very few real consequences for its economic coercion. The WTO has not proven effective in pushing back against it. And so it would, it would, for the first time, make it clear that the Chinese government would face consequences for this. And that would change the risk calculus in Beijing about when to deploy these kinds of measures. The other kind of effect that such an organization would have is that it would potentially ease the effects domestically of this kind of lobbying. So let's say that this kind of organization is formed, some kind of economic NATO. But, but so far, the Chinese government hasn't done anything. But the very existence of it would give assurances to industries that have perhaps previously been targeted. But if they were targeted again, it wouldn't hurt like it did before, that they would have some insulation from the effects of it. And potentially, that would change their behavior. That would change their own risk calculus. And perhaps they would not lobby so hard on you know, China-related foreign policy issues. These are just some, some examples. Now, an organization or an agreement like this in our current international politics would be extremely difficult. You know, the U.S., I think, lacks some long-term credibility in, in trying to create a new organization or to, to spearhead leadership over such a, you know, a grouping, you know, because it's unclear, you know, our next election cycle, what's, you know, what's going to happen. But there are other smaller ad hoc measures that could also be taken without having to have this enormous, huge step of creating something entirely new. And Victor Cha at CSIS comes up with some good recommendations for this. He and his team have done a lot of research looking at targeted dependencies that China has on economies of like-minded countries. So like New Zealand or like South Korea or Australia, you know, this, the South Korean economy is so much smaller than China's economy. You put the, the two head to head, obviously China is bigger. But there are, you know, maybe certain products that, that South Korea makes and that one particular supply chain in China is like 95% dependent on. And so that's a, that's a kind of targeted vulnerability that China has. And so Victor Cha has identified a lot of these and said the next time there is an episode of economic coercion from China, like-minded countries can look at these targeted dependencies and then, you know, put tariffs on this one thing, you know, like New Zealand could do one thing and South Korea could do one thing and the UK could do one thing, something like this, in addition to whatever the US does, to put pressure on that one instance or that one occasion. So those would be some measures that have not yet been taken. 
other things, the world is heading in this direction. So talking about more resilient supply chains, you know, diversifying supply chains away from China to some extent, friend shoring, these kinds of concepts are, you know, now widely discussed both in the US and the EU and in Australia, a diverse set of these measures, while one of them on their own would not be enough. If you can do these together, I think it can help insulate economies against this kind of coercion from China. I, I also talk in my book about steps that countries can take domestically, but my domestic recommendations are very targeted for the U.S. on our own legal environments. But there, there's 14 different recommendations there if anyone wants to you know, get the book and, and read them. Yes, I very highly recommend that everyone goes and read the book. You add so much more detail than we were able to cover today. And I think especially the examples are, are very important. You know, one of the recommendations is to document everything and call the actions for what they are. So I'm sure there will be more and more efforts to, to continue doing that, definitely on our behalf. But uh, I know you report on, on these instances a lot. So thank you for that work as well and thank you for coming on our podcast i hope we can have you again soon thank you so much for having me thanks for listening that's all we've got time for on policy guns and money but we'll be back next week <laughs>